morning church. It's good to see you. Uh, good to be with you. And a uh, special happy birthday to somebody on this side of the room who will go unnamed. She won't make eye contact with me. And don't bring up requests. I'm not supposed to do that. So don't come ask me to say happy birthday. So she, she knows who she is. Uh, all right. So we are uh, going to be in Ephesians 6 uh, in the passage that Mike just read. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your phone, your tablet, whatever you have there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have Bibles under the seats. If you want to grab one of those, feel free to turn to Ephesians 6. Um, just a quick announcement before we do. Uh, we've got something coming up in a few weeks I want to tell you about. Um, we are uh, having a uh, campus work day on October the 15th. And we typically do this in the fall and the spring and usually around 10 or 12 people show up and we get all the tasks knocked out and, and it all goes well. But um, this is actually going to be more than that. This is like we're actually calling the whole church to come, come be a part of this. We have been in our new building now for a little over a year, a year ago, May, we moved in. And we knew there were going to be things that were just bigger than us, things that we were going to have to figure out how to, how to manage. And so that list has been piling up. So actually, this is an invitation or uh, a calling for full court press um, to come show up. We really want the whole church to show up that day on October 15th. It's going to be a half day. Uh, we're going to get caught up on flower beds and mowing and some maintenance things and some organization things. And there's really going to be a kind of a job for everyone. So just want to invite you to come be a part of that. You do need to let us know um, online if you can go register for that. But that's um, October the 15th. Mark your calendar for Campus Work Day uh, here in about three weeks. So hopefully you can come be a part of that. Um, now we're going to step into Ephesians 6. And before we do, I've just got a little bit of an intro to walk through uh, to get us ready. This passage has... Um, as you're probably already kind of guessing, has kind of wreaked havoc on the church over the years um, with misunderstandings, misinterpretations, dancing around this, this, this passage on bond servants and masters. And so let me just kind of address how um, it typically gets handled in an unhealthy way and then kind of lay the course for the way we're going to handle the passage today. So there's kind of this spectrum, if you will, um, of, of different approaches to a passage like this. On one end of the spectrum... There are those who filter this passage through um, an American lens um, of kind of like 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery here in the United States. Uh, so some would read that into the passage and therefore then draw their conclusions based on what we would understand about slavery as it was experienced here in the United States, uh, you know, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. And so out of that camp then, there are two really extreme responses if that's how it's approached one would be um, to simply say well if that's view, God's view on slavery I want nothing to do with Bible the Bible nothing to do with the church and therefore nothing to do with God and those who would push back from the church because their um, perception is that the Bible endorses slavery as it was understood here on our soil and so if that's you or somebody you know um, that is sad and tragic um, that, um, that first of all, that the scripture was filtered through that lens, uh, and then that, that was the ultimate response that, that happened. Second of all, and we've seen a response even in our history here, where somebody would filter um, that passage through the lens of American slavery and somehow come to the conclusion that God is justifying uh, that form of slavery. And, uh, and out of that comes, you know, what we've experienced here as a country of just really brutal, harsh treatment of other people, and that is wicked and evil. 
Okay, so for those who would filter this passage through the American lens to draw their conclusion, you're going to end up with a really tragic, sad conclusion or something that is wicked and evil. And so on the far other end of that spectrum of, of ways to view this passage, there would be those who are so uncomfortable with it that they would seek to try to make it say something it's not saying and simply describe it as um, a situation kind of like working at Starbucks with an employee and employer, and that's what the passage is saying. But the problem with that is that relationship didn't exist in the first century, so that's not what it's saying either. And so like our path forward, our goal is to simply ask the question, what is God actually saying through this passage? And how can we get to a reasonable conclusion that, that leaves God's goodness intact and an appropriate application of his word in our everyday lives? And that's our goal today. And we're not going to try to make it say something it's not. We're also not going to skip around it and, and try to avoid it altogether. And so... Um, as we get started here, just a little reminder of where we've been in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 4.24 reminds us that even as a Christian, um, me being a Christian isn't a one-time event, but it's an invitation both into a relationship with God and a process that, that He's working on in me that we call sanctification. And that process is the everyday taking off of the old self and putting on of the new self. And again, that's not a one-time event um, where I've done that already, and so I'm good. If you are a Christian and you're honest, you know that is an everyday battle of taking off the old and putting on this new self. And Ephesians 4.24 says this new self is created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That essentially this new self that I'm putting on is this, this idea of Genesis 1 that God has created me in his image. And so I'm putting that image on. I'm putting on this new self that reflects the image of God. And so Ephesians chapter 5 starts this way. Verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as his beloved children. And so then what we've looked at over the last few weeks is okay well what how is that practically supposed to play out and the first thing that we looked at in Ephesians was marriage how I can imitate God I can put on this new self this and bear the image of God in my marriage either as a wife or a husband and then last week we looked at the relationship between parents and children we looked at how we can do that even in the way we parent or in the way that we interact as children with our parents whether we live in their household or not and so now today, Paul brings us to this passage of applying those principles of being an image bearer to the relationship between the bondservant and, and the master. And so this word here, let's just read verse 5, the first half of it together says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. This word bondservant in the Greek language is the word doulos or doulos. Um, it has, over time, meant a variation of things. Um, it's in general describing somebody who is under somebody else's authority. Um, it can translate slave. It could also translate servant and also translate attendant, somebody who attends to the affairs of, of an authority or somebody, somebody else. Okay, so that's generally what it means. So when I ask the question of the scripture, like, God, what are you saying here? Um, one of the things that we can do is we can let Scripture interpret Scripture. So does the Bible talk about this anywhere else? Does this word get used by any other biblical authors that could give us a little bit more of an understanding of kind of what Paul's getting at here? 
And it turns out this is actually a word um, and a relationship paradigm that Jesus himself uses in Matthew 18. And so like for me, I'm like, I really want to know how Jesus uses this word. What is that relationship between bondservant and master? Because I need to understand what I'm being called to do here. And so in Matthew 18, if you remember this, this moment with, uh, with Peter, um, one of the disciples, Jesus is teaching on forgiveness, and Peter comes to Jesus with this somewhat you know, rhetorical question of, hey, Jesus, how many times should I be willing to forgive my brother? Uh, seven times? Does that sound good? And it's like almost this expectation. Here, you can just put the star right here on my chest because I was the first disciple to ask. And then Jesus responds with, hey, Peter, nice job, buddy, but no. Um, how about 70 times seven? Um, this idea of it's, it's not, you can't calculate the number of times that you're going to need to forgive your brother in the same way you can't calculate the number of times that God has forgiven you. And then right out of that, Jesus uses a parable to illustrate this. And so a parable was like a kind of a made-up story. It was a device used by teachers um, they, would, they would make up a story about something that would be really familiar to the audience, something you didn't have to do a lot of work to imagine. So when I'd say, it's like being in a Starbucks, you're like, oh, I've been in a Starbucks. You don't have to, like, what's a Starbucks like? Yeah, I know what that's like. Okay, and so Jesus uses this reference to doulos, a, a bondservant and a master in a parable teaching Peter about forgiveness. Matthew 18, it goes this way. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which was more than you could have paid back in many lifetimes. This, this, this guy was in a lot of debt. And when he began to settle, oh, excuse me, verse, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. It was the idea of this kind of indentured servant because you owe a debt you can't pay. Now you'll spend the rest of your life, you and your family, paying off this debt. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him or begging him, have patience on me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. So there's the relationship paradigm here of the servant and the master. It's, it's essentially the idea of like a money lender, somebody in authority who is somewhat successful, who has loaned you money and they didn't have bankruptcy and foreclosure and these kind of things in place and so essentially you would just owe a life of labor um, for uh, what you owed now the master could have been a wicked evil master and taken advantage of you or the master could have been a good master and as we see here a merciful master who forgave you so you kind of had different versions of this playing out in this day and time and this is the description of what was being kind of described here to us and so I don't we don't really have a modern day example here in the United States of what this looks like one of the closest things I could think of would be uh, the farming industry if you have uh, ever been a farmer or had a family who was a farmer especially a self-employed farmer and the way that usually works is at the beginning of the of the season you would go to the bank and say hey can I borrow enough money to 
plow and plant seeds and fertilize and tend to and repair my tractor? Can I borrow enough money to make it to the harvest? And the hope was that you would invest that money wisely, get to the end of the season, harvest your crop and sell it and have enough money to pay that back and then live as a family for another year. And if you're really good at stewarding and timing and all these sorts of things align, you would have a little extra so you had to borrow less the next year and then even less the next year and even less the next year until essentially you could afford to kind of fund your own farming. It was very much like that in this day and time. It wasn't, didn't have enough money to go farm or to purchase the sheep, the lambs. to right to, So you would borrow money, and then if you couldn't pay it back, it was up to your master to decide what to do with you. So that's the relationship being described here. Now, as we apply it then to our context, the closest thing we do have is an employee-employer relationship. So that's not exactly what's being described here, but when we begin to apply it, that's the closest we have. Like when you go to work at the end of the work week, you're hoping to get paid. You're swapping your services for money. Usually you're giving your services and then you're getting your money, right? So your employer is kind of indebted to you until payday and then they make things right. And sometimes we do... Uh, these jobs under contract under some kind of legal obligation but that's the closest we have in our modern day context to what's being described here and so while things like starbucks didn't exist we can then take these principles and we can then apply them to our current everyday lives that's how we're going to handle it today and so this idea then for bond servants was this that they would obey their earthly masters uh, the word for masters is the same word for Lord. And so in a minute, he's going to talk about the Lord Jesus. And so he qualifies this. this. These are your earthly masters. These are the human people who have authority over you in some kind of work relationship. And here's what you're to do. You're to obey them. Okay, now that sounds kind of harsh, but it's the exact same word we, we saw last week in the relationship between children and parents. And we spent time talking about that word, the, the kind of the root Greek word here, akuo, means to hear with the intent to do. So to, we talked about children. Listen to your parents, that's what it means, with the intent of following their instructions. Jesus applies that to how we listen to him. In Matthew 7, he says, anyone who listens to my teaching and then does it is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And so the same word is being used here in relationships where essentially you're working for somebody or under somebody's authority that you would listen with the intent of following instructions. That's what obey means here. So bond servants or people working under the authority of somebody else listen with the intent of following the instructions of your earthly masters now we continue reading here and we're going to get a description of what this is to look like so the second part of verse 5 says with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would christ once again um, in some ways i would love to go back in time and have a conversation with the apostle paul and say hey i know what you mean here but could we choose a different word 
this whole fear and trembling, like you don't know this, but later on in American history, like hundreds and hundreds of years later, this is going to get misused and misrepresented in what you mean here. Now, we don't have to do that because it's super clear what he means. But the idea is not that good leadership invokes fear and trembling in its subjects, and that's how you know you're being a good boss. That's not what he means here. Matter of fact, he's going to use this same description. It was a, kind of an idiom to describe um, how you're to work out your salvation. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in a letter to the church in Corinth, he's, uh, he's applauding them. He said, hey, I just want to commend you for the way that you welcomed Titus with fear and trembling. What was scary about Titus? Why? No, he's describing a heart posture of respect and honor. That's what that means. In the first century, that was a way of describing of like having a posture of honor and respect towards somebody. And so it was described as fear and trembling. And so what he's saying then is the idea here then is our obedience, our listening to the instruction of those in authority over us with the intent of doing it should come with a sense of honor. He's not calling you to, to cow down in fear and to be shaking in your boots. He's talking about the posture of your heart would be one of honor. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, even in marriage, the virtue of honoring somebody, ascribing value to somebody. And that's what's being described here. And so not only are we to do that with a sense of fear and trembling, but also with a sincere heart. Now, really what we're going to what we're going to drill down into today is, is less about your productivity and your performance at work and really more about the condition and the posture of your heart as you do your work. And this idea of sincerity of heart really does that for us because the idea here is that whatever product, product is coming out of your life, the question is, does that align with the posture of your heart? That's the sincerity of, of heart here. There shouldn't be any difference between the quality of the job we are doing and the attitude of our heart towards that job. It's not enough to just produce. What we're being called to here to examine is really about our hearts and say, what is the posture of your heart as you produce? And is the product coming out of your work consistent with the posture of your heart towards your work? A sincere heart. So we're to obey or follow instructions with a sense of respect and honor. We're to also follow instructions with a sincere heart. Ultimately, as you would Christ. This is really important. Um, you're going to have a variety of experiences with managers and bosses and employers over the course of your career if you aren't self-employed but there's a good chance if you are there was a there was a time when you weren't and so even the best employers bosses and managers are going to be fallible men and women okay they're they're not going to ultimately be a perfect picture of who Jesus is yet what we're called to do is to honor them as we would Christ and ultimately see who is our boss, Jesus himself. That our work, the product coming out, the posture of our hearts should reflect 
that actually we see Jesus as our master, Jesus as our manager, our boss, our employer, and that our work should indicate that with a desire to follow instructions, with a sincerity of heart, and to work as you would for Christ. Kind of reminds me of even of the instructions for marriage. Wives, respect and honor your husbands. As what? Oh, as the church does to Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Oh, and do it, do it how? The way Jesus loves the church. That your interaction with your workplace should reflect a greater reality, a greater love, and a greater relationship, and that is your relationship with Christ himself. And this next instruction that comes actually was, has been a really st- a struggle for me. Um, verse 6 says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. And so really kind of this could play out two different ways. There can be a struggle when your boss is looking, and there can definitely be a struggle when your boss is not looking. Okay, we'll talk about both. The one where boss is not looking, let's talk about that first. This is the idea of integrity, that you're the same when nobody is around, right? So that whatever you're doing when a manager or boss is not around, it's the same quality of work you would do as if they were around. We don't get sloppy or lazy or cut corners just because people aren't looking. If you operate that way, you're more of a people pleaser. You're just working out of eye service. And then the flip side of that is, we can also be tempted to hyperperform or overperform when boss is looking. To, to kind of study boss and know what either makes boss happy or makes boss less angry. And so when eyes are on us, we go into hyper mode, which has been a struggle of mine since like day one. I mean, the first attaboy I ever got, I wrote it down in my brain, like do this, get that. That felt good. So I kept doing this. And I learned how to study whoever was over me and pay attention to what caused them to smile versus what caused them to raise their voice and what created stress versus what created relief. I'm like, hey, I like the attaboy. I like the way that feels. So I'm going to do everything I can to get that. Again, still working as a people pleaser, right? Working for eye service. And so the idea here is that if we are working for the Lord and he is ultimately Right? We see him as our master, we see him as our manager or our person of authority, then our work's going to look the same when boss is present as when boss is not present. Because your boss is always present. You see that? The one you ultimately work for is always present. So the next thing that is mentioned here is that we do this not as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. And just a brief note here, similar to what we've talked about in the past um, few weeks, is this idea, like with wives, submit to your husbands. Right before that, Paul called all believers to submit to one another. So whatever he meant to wives, he meant for all of us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we looked at some passages of Scripture that said, oh yeah, by the way, all who are in Christ are called to love this way. And so as we think about this bondservant relationship, um, ultimately, we're all bondservants. You think about that. This isn't just for a select group 
who've made it into a certain vocational relationship or dynamic with authority. What Paul is saying is, oh, by the way, we're all bondservants in this passage. As bondservants of Christ, and even employers, managers, and bosses are bondservants. We're all bondservants here. We're all included. And so next up is he says this after calling us all or referring to us all as bondservants. He says this, here's here's what I want you to do. I want you to do the will of God from the heart. Okay? So in my work and in my relationship with my authority at work, or if I'm in authority, in relationship with those under my authority, I am to do the will of God, to carry out the desires of God in my workplace. And we could spend a number of Sundays really just digging down into this one principle. What is the will of God for you? And whatever that is, also do it at work. Like that's the application here. So just a couple of examples I want to pull out today to kind of help us understand this. Like, first of all, I think about the things that God has called all of us to. If he's called you to it, it's his will for you. So Matthew 28, this passage we call the Great Commission, where Jesus says, verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is God's commission for all who are in Christ. The command is to make disciples as you go. As you go to school, as you go home, as you go play golf, as you go fishing, as you go have coffee with a friend, and oh yeah, by the way, as you go to work, it's God's will that you would make disciples. So we know that. If I'm going to Right? Do the will of God in my workplace. I'm going to be looking for opportunities to engage people in, in, in kingdom conversations. Romans 10 describes it this way, this way. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And if you're in Christ, you're being called right, to have beautiful feet in your workplace. To bring this good news message of hope to your workplace, it is the will of God. Galatians chapter 5, some of you are familiar with the fruit of the spirit and you can sing the song and you may even have this written on a wall in your house galatians 5 22 think about the application though in the workplace but the fruit of the spirit so this is what god is doing in you if you're in christ the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience at work yeah kindness really yes goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law why because these things are the will of God there's never going to be a time where God comes to you and says you know what I changed my mind don't be patient anymore don't be kind anymore there's no law against these things because this is the will of God for you even in your workplace I want to slow down now as we step into another passage, Romans 12. So just a little bit of background, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is this beautiful calling that in view of God's mercy for our lives, that we would present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, 
And then what will happen out of that is that we'll be able to discern what the will of God is. And then later on in that same chapter, um, Paul begins to describe the will of God for our daily lives. So listen to the description, and I want you to think about your workplace, whatever that is. Romans chapter 12, I'll start in verse 9. In your workplace, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You want me to read that one again? Yes. In your workplace, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It's the will of God. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And all the bosses in the room are going, amen. Bosses, you're a bondservant too. Do not be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you. So the recognition is there's going to be certain circumstances you're in, even in work, where it's just not possible. But as, as much as it is possible, right, and it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do your part to live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So there's just a few examples of what it looks like to do the will of the Lord. That's always the will of the Lord for you. Whether you're at home, or you're on the beach, or you're at work. Do the will of the Lord. Rendering service, verse 7, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. This is a description of benevolence or giving a good gift do your work in a way where it is a, is considered a gift so it's more than just a transaction of me saying you're giving me money i'm doing this thing you're giving me money i'm doing this thing but this thing that i do my desire is that that would be seen as a gift I'm doing more than just bartering with you and trading time for money. I'm actually seeking to do something that would be a gift to you. Render service with a good will. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or free. Regardless of your working situation, this is the Lord's will for you. And give your work away as a gift to your company, 
to your employer. Now, verse 9, there's a shift. And now specifically, God, speaking through Paul and his writings here, is going to address those who have been put in a position or a role of leadership. A boss, master, a manager. Somebody in a position of authority, a team leader even. And here's the instructions. First of all, masters, those of you in charge, oh, by the way, do the same to them. So everything that was said to the bondservant, now masters are being told, hey, you do the same. This is not a one-way relationship where you're at the top, they're at the bottom, they're just serving you, they're giving good gifts to you, they're making your life easy, they're living peaceable with everybody. No, those of you in charge do the same to them. Treat your employees the same way that I've instructed you right or them to treat you with a sense of respect sincerity of heart not only when people are looking as you would unto Christ not as people pleasers seeking to do the will of God and that your efforts would be a good gift mm. i hope I hope that at least at some position in your life, you've had the opportunity to work for somebody, to be under the leadership and care of somebody who saw their work and their leadership of you as a gift that they wanted to give away. I hope you've experienced that. You may not have. But if you're at that position of leadership in your place of employment, this is what you're called to do. To lead people with the kind of care that Jesus leads you with and to give away your work as a gift and then we get extra instructions and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him so I want to take a step back so when we think about work from God's design, we have to understand our workplaces, however good or bad they may be, are all the result of the fall. It's not the way God designed it to work. He didn't design you and the world for you to go out into the world and make other people wealthy and successful. He didn't design work to be something that was hard and stressful and created anxiety and depression and remorse and all these things. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve worked before the fall. It just didn't look the way it looks now. For Adam and Eve, they were called to go into the garden and to cultivate and to work the soil, to steward well creation and essentially to harvest that which was good. They didn't have to go into debt to get a harvest they didn't have to go in debt to get a paycheck they just simply cultivated this amazing garden god had created and they enjoyed their work if, there, if you've ever had an experience maybe it was brief you're like i actually enjoy what i'm doing for a moment like that's just a that's a snapshot a small glimpse of what it was like before the fall adam and eve loved their work it was life-giving but what happens after the fall? 
Genesis chapter 3 describes for us what happens after the fall. Here's what work is now like. This is the reason why your work is hard at times. For some of you, your work is hard, really, really hard right now. Genesis 3, God's talking to Adam. He's telling Adam, hey, Adam, everything's different now. Remember how this used to be? Well, it's not going to be like that anymore. Remember how this used to be? Well, it's not going to be like that anymore. So now he's going to talk about work. In verse 17, he says, listen, hey, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I have not, I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. I'm actually cursing work. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It didn't used to hurt, it will hurt now. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Until or till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's why work is so hard. Work has been cursed. You're now having to contend with the, with the soil. You're now having to contend with the thorns and thistles, which could be a metaphor for the people you work for. The job itself may be hard. So now after the fall, work for us is going to be a toil. It's going to be a burden. And there are going to be some who are going to manage that burden and somehow become successful at it. And guess what? They're going, to, they're going to rise to the top. It's been happening since Genesis 3. And there are going to be those who don't contend well with the soil for whatever reasons, and they're going to contend to stay at the bottom. That's not God's design. It's just how it is now. It's not, it's not the way God designed work to be. It's just the way it is now. And so now what Paul is doing is saying, now you're in Christ and God is redeeming everything that was lost in the curse, including this work piece. And so now Christian employees and Christian employers, you can do things different. You can operate in a way that reflects the way it was before the fall. Honoring one another, doing your work with sincerity, giving your work away as a gift. And this is what Paul is calling us to. For all who are in Christ, all who have heard this gospel, that Jesus has come to earth, the Son of God, to die, to be buried, to resurrect from the dead, and ascend back to his rightful place in heaven, and to put your faith and trust in him as your Savior and your Lord. For all who are in Christ who have done that, God is redeeming everything that was cursed. Everything, including marriage and parenting and work. And that is the full good news of this gospel. Jesus describes his kingdom this way. And he tells his disciples, hey guys, the way you're interacting in the world is upside down. You're, you're, you're seeing the world through an earthly lens. Let me just describe for you what the, what the world should look like from God's perspective. And in Matthew 20, two of his disciples have come up to him and they actually want a position of authority and a position of honor and respect. 
His two brothers, they come to him like, Jesus, can we, can we be first in line? Can we have this position? And they're seeing the kingdom from an earthly perspective, thinking, if we're going to be, if we want the best, we've got to be at the top. And here's what Jesus, how he responds to them, and I want you to think about your workplace in this way. And when the ten heard it, these are the other ten, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, your bondservant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Paul says to managers, employers, bosses, you do the same thing for those entrusted under your care. And oh, by the way, stop threatening them. That came from the fall. That came from the curse. Using your position and authority to leverage and manipulate. Don't lead your people that way. Care for them. See the kingdom differently. The greatest among you will be the least. Those in charge will become the servants. And that's what the kingdom looks like. Now here's the the end of this. When we take these truths with us to work tomorrow and the next day, guess what? We're, We're image bearers. We're reflecting the truths of the kingdom to our employers, to our fellow employees, and to those who have been trusted under our care. We're putting on the new we're serving as imitators of God in our workplace. I want to land with some questions um, for reflection and discussion. And I want you to just take some time to think about the application of these truths in your life this week. The first question is this, is what, what would it look like this week for you to follow instructions and directions in your workplace in a way that displays or reflects your desire to submit to Christ. Like, what would that look like in your workplace this week to, to hear res- instructions, to receive them, and not just do them, but do it in a way that reflects the way that you want to honor and submit to Christ? Think about the quality of your work. Maybe you're crushing it right now. You're a top producer, or maybe you're struggling. Does the quality of your job, the job you are doing, and the attitude of your heart towards it, do they match? That's what we're asking. We're not asking if you're the top in sales or teacher of the year. I'm just asking, is the, is the work coming out of your life, does it match sincerity of heart? Does it match what's going on inside of you? Do your efforts at work look the same whether or not your boss is looking? You don't ramp it up, but you also don't ramp down. Do 
Do you give thought and effort to carrying out the will of God in your workplace? I mean, just in your heart attitude towards others. Do you give thought and effort to carrying out the will of God in your workplace? Would your boss and those who you work with see your efforts as a gift to the company or the school district or the campus to the organization? Would your boss and your coworkers see your efforts as a gift? And what is the primary motive for the way you do work? Is it compensation? Just swapping your time for money? Or the rewards of Christ? So how do you see that? What is your primary motive for the way you do your work? And then just a couple of questions I want to add on here for those who are in manager positions or employers, um, bosses. Are you displaying respect and honor towards those you lead? Are you, are you displaying respect and honor towards those you lead? And does the attitude of your heart match your outward efforts? And then last but not least, are you leading those who have been entrusted to your care in a way that reflects the relationship between Christ and his people? Would those who are paying attention be able to see a reflection of the way Christ leads his people in the way that you're leading your people and your team and those you manage? I want to take some time to pray for us now and then we're going to get to celebrate in baptism together and we're going to get to sing together. Let's take some time to pray. Um, Father, thank you for, God, this message this morning, God, I think for some of us probably really timely. Um, God, we recognize that um, the jobs that we work, however successful we are or not successful in them, Father, that ultimately what makes them hard is that this is just the result of the curse. And so, God, we know that it's going to be by the sweat of our brows and by contending with thorns and thistles that we will eat, that we will make money. But, God, we're so grateful that you're redeeming all that was lost, that even though those things may be true and the work environment that we're in may be extremely secular or lost or far from you, that, Father, we can, we can do our job as image bearers. We can reflect your goodness and your kindness we can reflect kingdom principles. We can carry out your will in the job that we're being paid to do. So Father, could we see our workplace as such? A place to give away our efforts as a good gift. A place to display the fruit of the Spirit and live out this commission to make disciples. So Father, we're praying your Spirit would stir in each of us now how we could not just be hearers of your word, but also be doers of your word this week. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.